1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. That, of course, is education that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access, and we'll be talking about that today. Public education, if education is a right should be available for every child, regardless of the bank balance or otherwise of the child's parents. In the end, it's got nothing to do with the parents as to whether or not they have educational opportunity. It is our duty as a society, as a democracy, to give them that education. And we'll be talking a bit more about this shortly. But public education should also be public in ownership and control without being having contracts put out to private enterprise to build and maintain our schools and then lease them back. We should own them and we should control them and our Minister for Education should be responsible for that. They should also be the only ones that receive public money because they're the only ones that can be publicly accountable. And our governments should make sure that every child in this country has the opportunity for a first rate public education. We know this is not happening, and here we have our press release 689. Free education, the basis of opportunity, is denied by ever increasing fees of private schools and public schools. It's almost time to go back to school, isn't it, listeners? And we're being treated to the usual press reports about spiralling fees at private schools, particularly in the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald and the Fairfax Press here, The Age in Melbourne. Back-to-back fee increases, we're told, have pushed private schools out of reach for a new generation of parents with education costs spiralling above $500,000 per child in the country's top schools. Private school costs have jumped by more than 64% in the past decade to an average kindergarten to year 12 total of 487,903 in city schools. Now, access to education for all children, that is educational opportunity for all children, depends on a very simple, very, very simple premise. All education should be free. The education of any child should not have to depend upon the income or bank balance of his or her parents or grandparents because more and more the grandparents are being asked to foot the bill these days. Tell me about it. (laughs) Education should be paid for by the taxpayer and be public in purpose, outcome, access, ownership, control and accountability as we've said before and there should be no undermining of this basic democratic principle by private institutions that charge fees. These principles were hammered out and adhered to in the 19th century Australia, but in the last half century they've been thoroughly undermined by state-aided private schools and the charging of fees at our public schools themselves they've been eroded by the outmoded principle of choice, that is choice for the wealthy and those who wish to advance their self-interest at the expense of those less fortunate than themselves. Public school parents not only pay double education taxes, they pay taxes for public schools that they use and ever-increasing tablet taxes for private schools which they do not. To add insult to injury they are asked to pay ever-increasing fees at public schools themselves. That's if they actually have the choice of a public school in their locality. According to data compiled by education financing company ASG, government education costs are calculated to have jumped by a quarter in the past decade to $68,613 across a student's total school years. That's not the 64% that the the big private schools have jumped, but it's still considerable for ordinary parents. User pay has trickled down into the public sector in this country. Anyone who cannot pay is deprived of extracurricular activities and reduced to charitable status. And this is in our public schools themselves. So much for public education is a right in our Australian democracy. Meanwhile, in Melbourne itself, as parents are looking at a bill of 536,515, which is bigger than the average, for a P to 12 private school education for their children... That's over the P to 12 um, time. They're casting their eye around for a local public school which provides as good, if not better, opportunity for tertiary entrance than any private, over-resourced institution. And where do I get the material for that? I get it from The Australian on January the 18th on page 10. Why not? It certainly makes good economic sense to go to the public school if you're forced to help your child into the housing market at the end of the day. Why pay half a million for an education for your child when they're going to come to you at the end of the day, even if they've got through university and say, we haven't got any money for a house, mum, or to their grandmums? We need the deposit for a house, or we need the house. By the time they get there, that 500,000, that half a million will be good enough for a deposit I suppose. But such parents are now confronted with a problem themselves. The choice of a public school in the inner city areas where Kennett closed all those public schools in the 1990s, particularly in Melbourne, are very thin on the ground. Even Kevin Donnelly in The Australian on January the 18th on page 2 admits that public school parents are being quote shoehorned into private schools where successive fee increases uh, push their finances to breaking point. Yet Kevin Donnelly still has the gall to say that the choice remains the key and suggests that further tax deductions for private school parents... So it's obviously slipped his mind that if you're going to get tax deductions for your educational fees in the first place, you've got to have the money to spend on them, in this case on private schools. And what does not appear to be in his mind at all is that educational choice should be about children and their educational opportunities, not the choice of parents buying commodities in a marketplace that will place their children in a preferable position to other people's children. But if public school parents want information on school fees in public schools and what they should pay and shouldn't pay in a public school, they can get some very interesting information from VCOS and the dogs have given you a web page that you can go to. So what does VCOS have to say? VCOS does assert that it should be the right of a child to an education. No. They admit and they, by just mentioning it, say that they probably agree that the notion that sending your children to a government school is free is a persistent myth. The tragedy is, of course, it shouldn't be a myth. It should be something which is a fact. As parents will know, families are asked to spend increasing amounts on their children's education, forking out on digital devices such as iPads, textbooks, stationery, school uniforms, sports days, elective subjects, camps and excursions. Well, it's not just the parents that know, of course, it's the grandparents that know when the parents come knocking on their front door. And this grandparent can, um, can vouch for all of that. In fact, I've been thinking of adding up all the cheques that I've made out. Now, these costs have increased by at least a third over recent years, and the cost burden isn't helped by the Federal Government's recent, recent axing of the school children's bonus. If parents don't pay these fees, their children are often barred from full participation in school activities. I'm talking about public schools here, listeners. They can miss out on important development opportunities and may be excluded from their friends and peers. And this is also the case in New South Wales and elsewhere, and I know this because there is a very important uh, charitable group called the Smith Family, and um, some of us have actually got little girls that they've had, or little boys that we've half adopted, and we pay money every year to make sure that they don't miss out but it should not be a matter of charity it should be a matter of right that the little girl that I send money to should not miss out on anything because I pay taxes you pay taxes and these taxes should go to make sure that she receives everything that she needs in her public school. So what Are you forced to pay for if you send your child to a government school? Victorian government schools can ask you to pay for items that your child takes as temporary or permanent possession of, including textbooks, student stationery and some school uniforms. They can also ask you to pay for materials for learning and teaching where students construct, consume or take possession of the finished article. For example, ceramics, photography, etc. And they can also ask you to pay for activities that all students are expected to attend. For example, transport and entrance costs. So what happens then when some children can't pay that? Victorian legislation states that schools must not charge to teach the standard school curriculum. That is the eight core subjects of arts, English, health and physical education, languages other than English, maths, science, studies of society, environment and technology. However, schools can and do request payments from families for things like textbooks, stationery and student ID cards and activities that all students are expected to attend, such as camps and excursions, and what happens to the little child whose parent doesn't have the money for the excursion or the camp. Schools can also charge for optional activities or items, such as music lessons and class photos, and can seek voluntary school donations. These charges are known as school-level parent payments, And schools are responsible for developing their own parent payment policies based on government guidelines. And very recently, of course, there's been the whole question of swimming lessons, which are in the process of being mandatory, but there's the question of who's going to pay for the swimming lessons. VCOS members have previously identified substantial problems with how these payments are calculated and communicated. Now, in 2015... There was a damning Auditor-General's report which found that some parents were being charged for items that should have been free, such as class sets of textbooks, first aid nurses and grounds maintenance. It concluded the payment requests lacked transparency, with some school invoices using vague descriptions like curriculum contribution or classroom consumables. A survey of 366 schools found that 30% either didn't have a formal payment policy or the one they did have was in breach of departments' guidelines and none of them had a financial hardship policy to help struggling families. To its credit, the Victorian Government has reviewed and revised its parent payment policy, which schools are required to implement from this school year. So the public schools in this state have a fairly high level of accountability, especially since, of course, uh, Mr. Napoli and other people uh, defrauded the education department of large sums of money that was uh, set aside for the disadvantaged students. Uh, and they, the membership of this group, of course, included a gentleman that um, nipped across to the Catholic Education Office. Now, the new policy of the Andrews government gives families and schools greater clarity about what they can charge, and you can ask your local school about that. Uh, It instructs schools how to better support families experiencing financial hardship because uh, those who either refuse to pay or cannot pay don't in the end have to pay. Uh, it clarifies that schools can't charge extra to teach senior students Vcal subjects and it supports schools to better communicate their payment structures. But it also emphasises that students must not be penalised when payments aren't made and in that of course they would be different to the private schools. Because students are not to be denied access to the standard curriculum program, refused instruction or disadvantaged. The policy reads, if you feel this is happening to your child, you should contact your school immediately. And probably you should contact Mr Andrews as well. And Mr Molina. Unfortunately, this new policy doesn't fix all the problems. Because as you know, and we all know, dear listeners, this shouldn't be a problem. Education should be free from go to woe. Schools are still able to determine what items are considered essential to student learning and they can still send parents monthly payment reminders potentially causing undue stress. The new policy also fails to address the underlying issue that school funding should be adequate to deliver the standard curriculum program for free. So... Go to the VCOS um, website and have a look because VCOS is firmly of the view that the Department of Education needs to regularly monitor the rollout of this new regime and should act quickly if breaches or sloppy practices are identified. And monitoring should also be used to identify systemic issues so that these can be resolved quickly and that the public doesn't have to wait years before people who are defrauding the taxpayer like Mr Minapoli, are finally brought not just to ICAC but also to the court. No child should have to miss out on a quality education because of their family's finances and no parent should be made to feel guilty if they can't afford to pay. Well, VCAS are right there. That is why education should be free. So that is our press release for this week and you can read it again if you wish and uh, have a look at the VCOS um, situation and what their advice is at our website at www.adogs.info. And now we'll have a little bit of music, something perhaps from AIDA. Well, there we are, listeners. We've been uh, listening to about how the private schools are upping their fees again, in spite of the fact, of course, that they're getting ever-increasing amounts of taxpayer funding. Uh, When it's reached the stage in some places where they're getting more funding, the local private school gets more taxpayer funding than the local public school does, and yet they still up their fees. So we thought that we'd... um give you a little bit more information from this fascinating article in the Australian of January the 17th. Uh, here's some of the uh, Australia-wide information on the actual um, fees that you are liable to pay, the amount of money you're liable to pay if you give your child a P to 12 private education in Australia listen to these figures and then think well would it be better if we gave our children a house if we've got this money that's if you've got this money I'm not so certain that too many of my listeners would have this money but if you won tats lotto tomorrow and you had a child think about what you would do for that child would you give them this kind of an education or would you do something else Now, over in Western Australia, the average over there is 407,627 in Perth that you'd have to fork out uh, if you were going to uh, pay fees at a private school, a large private school, for your little darling from P to 12. But if you're in regional Western Australia, that would go down a bit to 319,135. Uh, it's a little bit better as you come east in Adelaide, very hot Adelaide. 377,131 is the average that you would have to pay there. And in regional South Australia, it goes down to 295,924. Up in Queensland, uh, if you're in Brisbane, it's going to cost you 372,037. Uh, for um the P to twelve education in a big private school. Out in the regions it would be three hundred and thirty seven and twenty seven dollars. In New South Wales in Sydney it's almost yes I think it is the highest. If you want to send your son to Shaw grammar or one of those schools it would or St. Aloysius, I think Riverview, where Mr. Rabbit went to school, yes you would want to send your your child to where a previous um, Prime Minister went to school, your little darling, uh, you would be spending 575140 out in regional New South Wales you'd be spending, if you went to Scots in Bathurst, 364230 down in Melbourne, it's almost as expensive as Sydney. Not quite, but getting there, 536515 in Melbourne for a big private school. Uh, St Aloysius or Xavier or um, uh, Scots or MLC, yes, well over the half a million mark. And in regional Victoria, it would be 370570 Canberra. Uh, which is a region in itself, you'd be paying $447,307. Uh, Hobart is not as cheap as you might think it is. It might be good for uh, real estate at the moment, or that's, although that's uh, going up. Uh, in Hobart, you'd have to pay 433990 if you thought your little darling should be going to Hutchins or one of those schools. And in regional Tasmania, it's 350211 So I wouldn't advise you to um, immigrate down to Tasmania. All very interesting. Now, if you sent your child uh, to a Catholic school or um, one of these newfangled religious schools, it will cost you a bit less, um, uh, a bit more than a quarter of a million rather than more than half a million. However, um, just think about what you could do with that sort of money at the end of the day, particularly if they arrive at university and discover that the children from the local public school are doing a lot better because they haven't been spoon-fed and treated like the children of aristocracy, but they have actually been taught to think for themselves because the plain fact of the matter is uh, if you keep reading the Australian... And remember, this is the Australian I'm getting this information from. This is what's so very interesting. The next day, on January the 18th, there is a very interesting article Private Schools No Longer Needed to Unlock a Path to University. And here I discover that the advantages of an expensive secondary education are oversold in the modern era. Now, listeners, this is not 3CR saying this, this is not the dogs. Uh, this is not the teacher unions, this is the Murdoch Press. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Dempster from the Murdoch Press tells me that as parents across Australia gear up for another school year, many will be weighing up the costs of another 12 months of private school education. Well, that's the ones that can afford it, of course. Some Australians pay upwards of 20000 a year to send each of their children to a private school and it can be a major source of financial pressure. Listeners, I've been assuming that these wealthy parents only have one child because that's all they could possibly afford to have. But if you've got several children, then you're looking at millions, aren't you, if you want to send your children to um, a private school? Education Minister Simon Birmingham touched on this sensitive issue this week when he said it was up to schools to justify fee increases, particularly those above the rate of inflation, in an era of low wages growth. Because, of course, these fees are not necessarily going to increase the uh, pay of the teachers. Oh, no, it's always been the public school teachers who have fought for the um, rights of teachers and have improved in the process the, um, the conditions and the pay of their brethren in the private schools. Uh, the people in the private schools very, very, very rarely go on strike or do much fighting. So education is one of those services which it's difficult to make reliable judgments about value, especially before purchase. That's if you treat it as a commodity, of course. But uh, these parents who want to spend this kind of money thinking that they're going to get special special treatment, um, uh, they have to work out whether or not they're getting value for money. And they just might find that it's the biggest con job of the century. So um, price acts as a signal for quality. So it's partly for this reason that private school fees have risen much faster than the rate of inflation, notwithstanding generous government funding. We all want the best for our children, don't we? Yes, yes, yes. And we are prepared to make sacrifices, are we? To give them the best chance in life. But as the price of private schooling rises, it's reasonable to ask if it's valued for money. This is particularly the case given recent changes to the higher education system that make some of the advantages previously afforded by a private school education much less significant. Now the person who wrote this, Andrew Dempster, says that he was privileged to attend a good private secondary school when he was growing up in Brisbane. Because at the time, he reckons, getting into university was difficult. Places were capped and controlled by federal government and there was fierce competition for them. Not only were places in short supply, but there was also limited choice. Well, the University of Queensland always had limited choice. Don't worry about that. (laughs) I've got a master's from that venerable institution. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, I could tell you some stories about the University of Queensland. <laughs> it was the only local institution of international standing. Well, I'm not sure about that. Queensland University of Technology had only recently acquired university status and Griffith University was still relatively young. Well, I think the QUT has probably produced more famous graduates than the, uh, than the University of um, Queensland, But in the 1980s and 90s, many capable students applied for a university place only to be rejected and demand considerably outstripped supply in those days. This phenomenon was so well known that governments collected data on unmet demand for university study and reported it every year. An unmet demand peaked in the early 90s when more than 50,000 Australians applied for a university place but were turned down. In that era, the case for sending your children to an elite private school, if you could afford it, was strong. Well, it might have been in Queensland. It wasn't in Sydney or, or, or Melbourne. Uh, those schools prided themselves then, as they do now, in the high tertiary entrance schools their students attain. Well, he's not telling you how many of them failed in first year either and how the ones that did get through to from government schools did much better. Mm. Graduating with good marks was the most certain way to obtain entry to a university system that was, by definition, exclusive. But so much has changed since then. University education is now much more open and accessible. If you're capable, there's a very good chance you'll find a university willing to take you in, especially if you're over 22 or 21. You're also much likelier to get into your choice, of course, Universities no longer ivory towers available only to the privileged elite. Well, actually, that happened down south, if you're a Brisbaneite, in Sydney and Melbourne, certainly in Sydney, uh, much earlier. When I went to Sydney University in the 1950s, I think I was one of the poorest students in Sydney and I received an aristocrat's education. And nobody has ever looked down on me uh, since just because I came from a state school. Now, the choice of where to study, he claims, is better as well in Australia at the moment. And students in metropolitan areas can choose from three or four good ones at good universities in their city. And so can students go in the regional areas. So these days, a top tertiary entrance score is not the only path to further study. Fewer than half the people studying at university are admitted on the basis of their Year 12 achievement. More are admitted based on professional experience, vocational qualifications and bridging courses. And there are a lot more second chances. Well, those have existed, haven't they? Uh, in, in Sydney and Melbourne, certainly, for many, many years. So I'm not sure that his justification of sending his parents, sending him to a private school, ever really stacked up. If you're sending your children to a private school to boost their chances of getting into a particular university, that's another thing. But even so, and finally we get a bit of research, the research by the Grattan Institutes concluded that average lifetime earnings of graduates from the nation's best institutions shaded those from other universities by a relative modest 6%. So it doesn't matter anymore whether you went to Melbourne or Sydney University either. Like for like, children from public schools outperform their private school peers. Once they get to university, their opinions differ on why that's the case. (laughs) Well, it's the case because in a public school you get a better education than you do from the wealthiest private school, which is more concerned that manners maketh men and women and that you have to mix in the right circles rather than get the right education or think for yourself. Yeah, think critically. There are many reasons that private schooling may be the best choice for a family. Well, well, listeners, here at the Dogs, we would advise you against it. It may be the right educational fit and it does offer parents and children access to social networks in which they otherwise may not participate. So I think that's getting a little bit closer to the to the bone there. Private schools are about networks. And they're about privilege. They are not about education. Others make the choice for religious reasons. Well, (laughs) that might have been the case 50 years ago, but I'm not sure that there's too much religion uh, or Christianity in a lot of these uh, so-called religious schools these days. However, advantages that private schooling previously conveyed in helping children to get to university and achieve once they were there have diminished considerably. And at some point, this will begin to challenge the prices that parents are asked to bear. Well, the plain fact of the matter is that the parents are actually walking with their feet. This is very interesting because even Kevin Donnelly has got to admit that In New South Wales, the increase in public school enrolments over the last 10 years is 14.4 per cent and they need 213 new schools in New South Wales before the 1920s. Sorry, the 2020s. And uh, in Victoria, it's even greater There's been a 19.2% increase and here in Victoria we are in urgent need of 220 new public schools and that is what our taxes should be going on. It shouldn't be going on schools that charge outrageous fees that are in fact worth a child's house, a house for your child. So um, we'll have a little bit more break a little bit more music, and then we'll come back to talk about America. Yes, well, there's some handles and his trumpet uh, overture to Atlanta. But now we're going to go over to America. It's been quite a week. Well, it's been quite a quite a year, hasn't it? Uh, Mr Trump is in, Will and truly in. And Betty DeVos came up last Tuesday before the Senate for the confirmation of her appointment. And she didn't get it all her own way. But uh, the Los Angeles Times had this to say about uh, Mr Trump's choice of education secretary. This is the Los Angeles Times, and here we've got Dale to read it for you.
0: Thanks, Jean. Yes, this is the uh, Los Angeles Times editorial board has gotten together to write this. Betsy DeVos embarrassed herself and should be rejected by the Senate, says the headline. Betsy DeVos answers questions about equal accountability in federally funded schools, proficiency versus growth in education and guns in in schools, and this was from the 17th of January this year. Betsy DeVos's love of private school vouchers didn't disqualify her for the role of US Education Secretary, even though vouchers are a bad idea. Nor did her lack of experience in public schools. What did render her unacceptable was her abysmal performance at her confirmation hearing Tuesday, during which she displayed an astonishing ignorance about basic education issues, an extraordinary lack of thoughtfulness about ongoing debates in the field, and an unwillingness to respond to important questions. She was so unprepared that she sounded like a schoolchild who hadn't done her homework. She frankly embarrassed herself and should be rejected by the Senate. Better yet, President-elect Donald Trump should withdraw her name and find someone who at least meets the basic qualifications for the post. The hearing will probably be remembered for the grizzly bear moment when DeVos suggested that a public school in Wyoming might need to have guns on campus to protect against trespassing grizzlies. DeVos said, reasonably enough that all kinds of school – traditional, public, charter, private – could expect her support if they did a good job of educating students. But then she contradicted herself by refusing to say that she would hold charter and private schools just as accountable as conventional public schools. Doing a good job matters only for some schools, apparently. And how would schools be measured – based on whether they meet a certain standard of proficiency or how much they improve over time. DeVos floundered trying to address this issue raised by Minnesota Democrat Senator Al Franken, clearly unfamiliar with one of the central questions in school reform. As Franken said in a deserved rebuke, this is a subject that's been debated in the education community for years. DeVos apparently didn't even realise that there's a federal law protecting the educational rights of students with disabilities, saying it should be up to states to make decisions about disabled students. When told that this was a matter of federal law, she stumbled yet again, saying, well, then the law should be followed, and suggesting that she might have been confused earlier. In addition, she was wildly off in her figures on student debt add to this her failure to answer questions about her home state of Michigan's underperforming charter schools, whose growth she advocated, about existing laws to protect adults from predatory for-profit colleges, or whether she would honour the Obama administration's rules regarding sexual abuse on campus. She refused to answer. DeVos is entitled and expected to disagree with Obama administration policies, what disqualifies her is her lack of understanding of existing law and policy and her inability to address them thoughtfully.
1: Yes, well, I, I'm, I'm very thankful to our members and listeners who have sent me information on the email this week about Betty DeVos. I think it's very interesting that um, the um, uh, Dana, Dana Goldstein, uh, Writing in America, also, uh, on on an education, I think it was on the uh, Diana Ravitch um, blog, points out that DeVos appointment signals that Trump is serious about the twenty billion school voucher plan that he rolled out on the campaign trail, and this proposal would redirect huge sways of the federal budget, education budget away from school districts and toward low income parents allowing them to send, spend a voucher at a public or private school of their choice, which potentially includes these for-profit virtual virtual, and religious schools. Um, so that's a very interesting point uh, to make. But as well as that, uh, the civil rights advocates are very concerned that Betty DeVos will not stand up for all children and they point out that she is not an educator, she's never led a state agency or school, nor has she ever been a public school parent or a public school student. And so the alarming record of this billionaire heiress, Betsy DeVos, who is the nominee to lead the Department of Education, has national civil rights groups warning that the ideologically driven conservative will not be an advocate for children. And those who are, are interested in the rights... Of the disabled are very very concerned. They are also concerned that Davos's staunch Christian conservatism and record of donating to anti LGBTQ groups, such as Focus on the Family, has sparked fears amongst the equality advocates. So um, you've got somebody there who a lot of a lot of people are very concerned about. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile. Let's go back to Mr Trump himself and um, find out what happened at uh, his actual inaugural or well, with his um, inaugural prayer team. And once again, I'll ask Dale to tell you about the people who turned up to pray for him at his inauguration. A very interesting lineup, indeed. Thanks,
0: Jean. Uh, Okay, the article's entitled, Here's a Look at Trump's Inaugural Prayer Team. I don't know, sorry, Inaugural Prayer Team. That's just such a ridiculous concept.
1: Well, I'd I'd also like uh, to mention that this comes from Americans United for Separation of Church and State. They are not an anti-religious group at all, far from it. Mm. Um, They are a group that believes in secularism, not atheism, but secularism, which is the separating out of religion from the state. And a lot of Christian groups and religious groups really do believe in this.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. Here's a look at
0: Trump's inaugural prayer team by Liz Hayes. President-elect Donald Trump may have struggled to attract A-list celebrities to perform at his inaugural ceremonies, but there'll be no, no shortage of clergy on hand Friday to pray him into office. Six religious leaders are expected to speak during the inauguration. Protestant pastors Franklin Graham, Paula White, Samuel Rodriguez and Wayne T. Jackson will join Roman Catholic Cardinal Timothy Dolan and Rabbi Marvin Heer. Trump's lineup reportedly is the largest contingent of clergy at an inauguration, at least since Ronald Reagan last took the oath of office. Several of Trump's pastors made the news during the presidential campaign. The Reverend Franklin Graham, son of Evangelist Billy Graham and leader of a ministry named for his father, hosted Decision America rallies in every state to encourage conservative Christians to vote for godly leaders who would address the spiritual cancer in America. Graham did not formally endorse Trump, but he appeared with Trump during the President-elect's Thank You Tour, and Graham credited divine intervention in Trump's victory. I believe that God's hand intervened election night to stop the godless, atheistic, progressive agenda from taking control of our country. Graham is perhaps the most controversial of Trump's choices, given his long track record of anti-LGBTIQ statements and frequent attacks on Muslims. Pastor Paula White, a a Florida televangelist who preaches the prosperity gospel, Mm -hmm. a belief that God wants people to be wealthy and that those with money are evidence of his blessings. It's a controversial theory, uh, but it's not hard to see why adherents would support a billionaire real estate mogul and reality television star for president.
1: It leaves behind the camel and the um, (laughs) the the eye of the needle.
0: (laughs) This is a very smart alliance, Kate Bowler, Professor of Christian History at Duke University, told Time about Trump's link to prosperity gospel believers. They are like him. They are outsiders with an unusual amount of popular support but not as much cultural credibility. White is the only member of the inaugural prayer team who also served on Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board During the election, a longtime friend of Trump's, White is often referred to as his spiritual advisor. She stumped for him during the campaign and told Politico, God is not new to Mr. Trump. He absolutely has a heart and a hunger and a relationship with God. Bishop Wayne T. Jackson of Detroit's Great Faith Ministries International did not endorse Trump, but he did spark controversy when he hosted the candidate at his church and interviewed him for his Christian television show. A registered Democrat, Jackson said he was not sponsoring a Trump rally but was taking advantage of an opportunity to learn and share Trump's views. The visit was seen as an attempt by Trump's campaign to make inroads with black voters, but his arrival at Jackson's church... Was met by protesters, like White Jackson preaches the prosperity gospel. The second half of trump 's inaugural prayer team features some less expected names. The Rev. Samuel Rodriguez, President of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, was critical of trump trump's stance on immigration, stating last spring. I'm not endorsing Donald Trump. I'm actually very opposed to his rhetoric on most issues. At the top of the list, his rhetoric on immigrants, on immigration, is unacceptable. But just a few weeks before the election, Rodriguez told followers Hillary Clinton's stance on abortion was more of a moral dilemma than Trump's desire to build a wall between the United States and Mexico.
1: Well, the the Roman Catholic Church always has two bob each way. (laughs)
0: Cardinal Timothy Dolan, Archbishop of New York and one of the country's most prominent Catholic leaders, is, a conserv- is conservative on social issues such as abortion, birth control access and marriage equality, but he criticised Trump's rhetoric on immigration in a July 2015 editorial in the Washington Post. I take seriously the Bible's teaching that we are to welcome the stranger, one of the most frequently mentioned moral imperatives in both the Old and New Testament. Dolan wrote. As an American, I, can, I take equally seriously the great invitation and promise of Lady Liberty. In a separate column on immigration that ran in another newspaper, Dolan went out of his way to attack Americans United. He also seems to believe that women can buy birth control at 7-Eleven stores. And he had a rabbi as well, but not an imam. But we're running out of time to go too much further into that.
1: The, the point is that it was Americans united for separation of church and state have indicated to us this is a president who is unlikely to, to make sure that there is a wall between the church and the state in America, although he's quite prepared to build a wall between America and Mexico. But that's all we have time for this afternoon, listeners. Uh, We thank you for allowing us into your kitchen or your dining room or your car, wherever you are listening to us. And we hope that you will look at our website at www.adogs.info. And it's bye for now.
2: I dream. I'm standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I did dead Says Joe, but I dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I